Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading sustainability thinkers and practitioners, scientists, economists, NGOs, business leaders and investors. We discuss the sustainability imperative, the key challenges, the latest thinking, and what's working in sustainability, resilience and regeneration. I'm very pleased today to welcome Jeff Mann to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Jeff is Director of the Centre for Global Political Economy at Simon Fraser University in Canada. His teaching and research concerns the politics and political economy of capitalism. Jeff is the author of several books, most recently, Climate Leviathan, A Political Theory of Our Planetary Future, written with Joel Wainwright, that explores the challenges global climate change poses to the contemporary geopolitical order. Thank you very much, Jeff, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thanks a lot for having me, Fergal. So uh, I'd like to talk to you, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about Climate Leviathan, your uh, recent book, and, um, and, and, and some of the other uh, issues and they've been writing about recently in, in the uh, COVID-19 crisis. Um, but maybe just before we start, if you can uh, share with us a little bit about your background and what your kind of work, current work focus is, Jeff. Sure. Uh, I, uh, I'm not sure how far into the distant past you'd like me to go, but uh, I, uh, I grew up in, in uh, Nova Scotia in eastern Canada, and, uh, and I have ended up over the years migrating farther and farther west, partly for... Uh, reasons of falling in love and partly for education and work. And, and uh, for a while now, I have been at Simon Fraser University, uh, which is in uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, or you know, suburban town next to it. And I, uh, I direct the Center for Global Political Economy there. And I am in, a faculty member in the Department of Geography. And uh, for the last, I would say, 10 years or so, I've been working on two, not two projects, but two kinds of areas of interest that have increasingly folded together. And that is one of those is the, the relationship between modern state emergency management on the economic and political front, which I think has kind of been funneled through a very vague tunnel of, of Keynesianism or what gets called Keynesianism and then the politics and geopolitics uh, of climate change. And, and increasingly those two things have merged, uh, you know, not entirely, of course, but those two interests have, have, have gotten in sync, which has been quite helpful for me, um, even if the bigger questions are still uh, very inchoate in my mind. And that's yes. where I'm at right now, actually. Yes, absolutely. Now, um, as a society, as, as societies uh, globally, we're facing many numerous interlocking crises on the horizon of, of different kinds. What in particular is on your mind at the moment, Jeff? Well, to be honest with you, one of the first things that came to my mind as soon as all this started, and I'm sure I'm not the only one who, who thought this, <laughs> but my, my aside from, you know, sort of immediate fear for both the stability of, of you know, our communities and, and uh, the public health emergency, on a little bit of a longer term, the first thought that came to my mind was that this was a real knock uh, to the struggle for climate justice or any kind of, in some ways, any kind of attempt to deal with the climate problem entirely. I feel like, and I, it's, an, it's for reasons that are entirely understandable in many ways. I think that, that the setback for the economy, uh, let alone the, the, without in any way meaning to demean it, the distraction of the public health crisis, uh, those two things alone will mean that, you know, over the next 
year to maybe more, uh, it's, it's entirely, I think, reasonable to expect that climate will drop down the political agenda. Um, I think it'll take a lot of work and it may be very successful that we can avoid that. But I also think that, you know, if uh, millions and millions of people are just desperate to have an income again and to feel that their families are safe, it's quite, uh, you know, it's quite reasonable to anticipate that, that that'll be an outcome. And that, of course, is somewhat close to disastrous, partly because of the timing um, and also because of all the work that's been done over the last few years that I think has been, you know, really successful, at least at putting climate at the top of many people's agenda. And so I, I, I think that will be a fight, um, uh, one that will be, need to be fought very carefully because many people's lives have been you know, so brutally disrupted by, by this process and many people's lives have been lost. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, really uh, important territory and I'd like to come back to that maybe later on and uh, we can talk about what, what your assessment of some of the, 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 the trends or what we're seeing and, 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 and your view on what kind of political scenarios we might face down the road um, and, and that is, I guess, uh, the heart of, of, of what you're exploring in Climate Leviathan, um, the, you know, um, the political uh, implications of uh, what, so I guess what might emerge in, in a period of climate crisis. Can, you, you explore four different scenarios. Can you talk maybe a little bit about what, what, what just explain what those scenarios are? And I guess also set the scene in, in insofar as why do you think there will be uh, or, or necessarily a, a change in the political climate uh, if, if we do see and when we do see increasing kind of politi- uh, climate issues? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to give it a go. That's for sure. (laughs) In terms of it, uh, so uh, so I should flag right away, of course, um, that uh, you know I wrote the book with my colleague and good friend Joel Wainwright at Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. So uh, I'm always uh, reluctant when I speak about our collective work. I, I worry that I'm going to characterize it in a way that he wouldn't himself, which uh, I think can happen more often than people would imagine. But I really want to flag, of course, that many, if not most of the of the great ideas in that book come from Joel. And so I shouldn't, uh, I shouldn't, uh, you know, take credit for, for it all. But the book it arose out of uh, an attempt on Joel's and my part to think about what seems, I think, hopefully like a, like a very important and maybe even obvious question to ask, which is, you know, if let's take the the work of climate scientists as at least close to accurate. In in other words, the world is headed for, uh, you know, potentially some significant thresholds or precipices, but if nothing else, everything is heating up very fast and our ecologies and communities have been built for a world that is quite a bit cooler than the one that we're heading into. If that's the case, then clearly the, the, the massive changes that unfold are not going to be primarily, or uh, sorry, that's not the right word, are not going to be uh, only ecological or environmental in the sense of perhaps, you know, a certain species having to shift northward in their range or whatever. But the biggest changes for, for humans are, are going to be the way that we organize our communities in the face of this. So if catastrophic climate change is actually on its way, which Joel and I believe it is, um, expect it to be, then how do our, how do we, how do our political economic arrangements and institutions change? How we, how might we anticipate those shifting to help for good or ill communities exist in this different set of circumstances? 
And that was the main question. So what are the political implications of, of you know, substantial and accelerating climate change? That was the, the, the overarching question. Yeah. Anyway, so with that overarching question, we, uh, you know, tried to figure out a way to get our fingers into the problem. And the way that we did that is by thinking about the various kinds of challenges that, you know, almost everyone is anticipating climate change might pose to political economic arrangements, whether or not they feel that or they expect the same outcomes, set that aside, the, 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 the choices you might say, or the, uh, the options are on some fronts are, are relatively, I think, easy to get your fingers into. And the first of those is the problem it clearly posits itself at a planetary or global level, but virtually all of our existing institutions, especially those oriented around dealing with something like climate change, tend to be at the national scale or subnational scale. So there's a coordination problem at the in the in the simplest terms that poses itself. And the question is, as climate change becomes so enormously important in the shift of the global environment, the only way to deal with it will be pressure to push upward in the scalar dimensions of governance. So some people are expecting, and I think it's not unreasonable, that you know planetary coordination will become a more and more important phase. And the question is, how does that take place? Does it take place in this sort of lame, voluntary way that we do right now, which has proven itself to be entirely ineffective? Or does something emerge that asserts itself or arrogates to itself the power to actually rule make and rule enforce at a planetary level some sort of sovereign form whether or not that is a coordinated group of nations one nation alone uh, you know the end of nations entirely it's hard to know but that question of whether or not the problem gets solved at the sort of patchwork sense that we have right now or there's a pressure toward a change in the scale that was our first question and the second question was like a lot of people, we were wondering, can, can capitalism as a mode of economic organization driven by a growth and expanding, you know, an imperative toward expansion, accumulation, can that survive, you know, in a, in a considerably hotter and more volatile world? And if we thought of those two options or two spectra, if you might think of, one is a, a sort of planetary sovereign arrangement and the other is not, we stick with the existing nation states. And if, and if we have in the other dimension uh, a capitalist response to the problem or a non-capitalist response to the problem, then you can imagine a two-by-two two table that comes out of that. And this is the, the means through which we sort of built a heuristic to understand or to you know, think about the problem. And so that two-by-two two table produces four possible outcomes, and we think through each one. We give them a name for good or ill. And uh, the first one and the one that we think is most likely, and I think the one that will be most empowered by the process we're going through right now, we call climate leviathan, which is effectively an attempt on the part of, probably led by, uh, we anticipate, the leading liberal capitalist democracies that exist right now. And it'll be, we, we, th we see this as an attempt to kind of maintain the current order in the face of climate change. Now that will be, of course, uneven and probably unsuccessful in many ways perhaps even a complete and utter failure. But there is, you know, a great deal of momentum to existing capitalist arrangements. And there is also, uh, you know, the, the fact that those nation states and elites and, and organizations of power that have the most power in the existing arrangement 
are most likely to take the first, or if not the first, the most successful steps in coordinating global action. So that climate leviathan would sit in that upper left corner where we see both a capitalist and planetary sovereign sense of response. Now, whether or not, as I said, it's a single nation or however that sovereignty takes place, and it may really only assert itself in the world of you know, carbon emissions and things like that. It's hard to know. The, the upper right, we would say, is, a, is an anti-planetary sovereign capitalist response. And I don't think either of us ever imagined the caricature of it that would emerge in the White House right now. But Trump, <laughs> yeah. we, we, we didn't predict him, but, <laughs> but it, it sometimes feels like we did. Yes. Um, he, is, he is a caricature of the, of the, of the nationalist, racist, uh, chauvinist response. Uh, the refusal to take climate change seriously, calling it a hoax, um, and the absolute opposition to any kind of international coordination as a threat to some sort of national sovereignty or imperial, you know, uh, dreams. Um, and so this is the behemoth figure. We call it climate behemoth. Um, and it is clearly opposed to Leviathan in any form. Uh, and then in the bottom left corner, as you can imagine, this would be the non-capitalist but planetary sovereign trajectory we call this climate Mao. And, and I, I want to flag just immediately that when we say climate Mao, we don't mean climate China and we don't mean climate Xi Jinping. Um, we really are trying to point toward the Maoist political tradition, which has a, you know, a significant base in much of the rural masses of Southeast Asia and, and, and East Asia. And, and part of our, our reason for taking this seriously is, is a purely kind of functionalist one in the sense that if you look at a map, of the numbers of people on the planet who are directly vulnerable to the extreme impacts of climate change. In other words, their livelihoods will be enormously affected or even wiped out. An extraordinary proportion of them are in Asia. And so unless somehow that the climate trajectory can be changed, it's basically, we would argue, you know, it's a political bombshell uh, waiting to explode, or if nothing else, it's it's a set of political bombshells waiting to explode in ways we can't necessarily anticipate. But the the revolutionary tradition there suggests that it won't be a straightforward capitalist response, as if somehow, you know, Unilever and uh, various uh, international firms, Google and Amazon, are going to coordinate some response. Um, there, there's a whole set of political traditions there that make uh, a, a very different kind of response. Uh, if not necessarily certain, certainly something that we should be taking seriously. And then in the last uh, box, you might say, in the lower right corner of that two by two table, you would, we have a, something we call Climate X, which is a non-capitalist and non-planetary -sov non sovereign response, which we effectively think of as a plurality of attempts to deal with climate change, to confront it, to hopefully roll it back if we can, um, at a whole bunch of different scales, a lot at the local level where people will have to remake their lives and the places that they live. Um, some, obviously, coordination at regional or even what we now call international levels. But much of it would be centered around, in some ways, moving without the state. And I think that that's partly in reaction to the failure of the nation state to coordinate anything of use so far. So as climate change becomes something that's virtually impossible for almost everyone on the planet to ignore, um, the, the institution that was supposed to buffer us and rescue us has clearly failed to do so pretty much entirely, I think, almost everywhere. 
and uh, and we expect uh, yeah, that if something like climate X were to emerge, we call it X because we don't want to we don't want to say we know what it'll look like. Um, it'll just have these these uh, other trajectories that don't fit with the others. And then we the book is an attempt to kind of think through what these four might mean, and uh, and and how we might uh, you know coordinate or or think about justice in a time when. This, the significance of the political, economic, and ecological pressures will be, you know, so extreme that that they're going to require a whole rethinking of how we do politics and how we think about our communities. That's very interesting. It's a, a very powerful uh, rubric and, and way of looking at the di- different uh, scenarios, and also, I guess, uh, highlighting the the importance of, as you say, the, the nation state or uh, what 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 transcends that or. What, you know, as, as you say, looking at a, at a, at a non-nation, maybe at a, a re- local um, uh, level as well, and also this question of, of globalization and, and, and capitalism, which, which I'll come on to in a moment. But just uh, as far as the political side of it is concerned, I, I, I know uh, so an interview uh, recently, and you were talking about the, uh, I think, the, said something like that, that you didn't think we had the necessary political institutional tools uh, to handle the, the various kind of uh, ecological, political crises uh, that that are facing us, uh, big topic, I'm sure, and, and and much to say. Can you maybe just say one or two things about what what, what you see there? Sure. I mean, in some ways, it, it it's a it's not a very insightful comment, uh, which means that most likely I said it and not Joel. Um, but <laughs> but it, but but what uh what I, I think uh, all we were trying to say is that. At the most straightforward level, the existing uh, COP process, you know, the UNFCCC and and uh, the almost annual meetings uh, that that have been organized, the most famous being in Copenhagen in 2009, I believe, and Paris in 2015. Um, you know, those have, uh, especially Copenhagen, I think, attracted the hope of progressives around the world as as in some ways... Uh, the mechanism by which something like a leviathan, might, in our terms, might emerge. You know, uh, the hope for an agreement that would be a binding, sovereign arrangement in which various players on the planet would know what they can emit and how, and who can do what, and there would be a kind of distribution of the the emissions possibilities, let's say, across the planet. And of course, in both those cases, and every one before and since, nothing has come about. I mean, we can talk about Paris as some sort of success because they agreed to a 1.5 degree rise in voluntary uh, arrangements uh, with the only possibility of enforcement coming through market-based responses. But even that hasn't you know, really come about. And so certainly at the international level, I think there's very little to point to that would suggest we have you know, a- anything to hope about in that process. I hope to be proven wrong at any moment, but so far I don't think there's much there. And so then, you know, as I said earlier, if the alternative is mostly action at the national level, well, that has been, you know, there are some, I suppose, cases where things have been well done. Um, And there are certainly nation states that have been more successful than others in, you know, creating a mild carbon tax or, you know, uh, imposing certain kinds of circular economy modes on how things work here in BC. We have a extended producer responsibility for waste that sort of works, I think, a little bit. Um, But in general, those uh, responses have been, I think it's totally fair to say, you know, 
even, even the ones that are successful are completely inadequate to the scale and scope of the problem. And so the question is, do, do we need new versions of these institutions and responses, or do we need a whole new set of ways of approaching the problem? Probably both would be the question, would be the answer. Um, the form that will take, of course, I, again, I think both Joel and I would say will be extraordinarily plural, but the key to that capacity to respond at the non-nation state or non-international in the, in the UNFCCC sense um, is that the, the, the people on the ground, you and I and everybody else on the planet, the, the people who live in the communities that are going to deal with this, they need the resources and the discretion, the power to make these decisions as to how this will unfold. Uh, the, the, in this sense, you know, a democratic response to this problem is actually also probably the only one that will help us survive it. Um, and that, I think, is is kind of where we're coming from. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. And, and, and then on, on the uh, economic side of it, or the, the uh, as far as capitalism is concerned, another uh, big topic to squeeze in here, mm-hmm. the evolution, um, you know, uh, it's generally called now the, the, the Anthropocene, although some people have suggested various other names, including the Capitalocene. Mm-hmm. Um, I, uh, and uh, there's no getting away from the fact that a, a tremendous amount of the, the damage to the environment has taken place uh, over the last 30 or 40 years, which has been associated with you know, a particular extreme form of capitalism or the neoliberal uh, economics. Um, I'm just wondering to what extent, uh, you know, you're mapping out the the, the, the possible uh, scenarios for the evolution of capitalism, and it is such a uh, enduring form. Um, to what extent you you see the uh, the the, the uh, environmental problems we have we're having today uh, coming from, from from capitalism per se, or or a more recent uh, form of that? Because I guess that gets into this question of what would you know post. Well, post-capitalism or post-neoliberal capitalism looked like another big topic, I'm afraid, yeah. Yeah, it's a big one. <laughs> um, and I, I would be reluctant to, to suggest that I have any better handle on where we're headed than anyone else. Um, I do think uh, that, I mean, uh, there is a kind of, uh, when I say reductionism, I don't even necessarily mean that in a in a kind of dismissive way, but there is, I think, something of a risk of reductionism in the idea that our current planetary conditions are a product of capitalism, and you know that's the whole force behind the thing. Um, I think that, firstly, there's a whole bunch of other uh, quite, uh, let's say, what's the right term here? negative or, uh, you know, unfortunate, uh, that seems too mild, dynamics here. And anyway, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, colonialism colonialism was a force before capitalism was a force. Uh, and it persists today, clearly. Uh, I see evidence of it every day in my life here in Vancouver, you know, because of the ongoing colonial occupation, effectively, of which I'm a part of, uh, you know, of Canada. And and so there's colonialism. There's a, clearly a, a you know a centuries long tradition of patriarchy that I think has actually exacerbated this problem in an, in an enormous way. And so it's a concatenation of forces. So to say it's the capitalocene, while I understand entirely Jason Moore's argument there, 
um, and he's the you know sort of the most vocal and best advocate of, of this term. I think as he has done since, uh, we need to do a lot of work to show that the ca the capital scene is actually this concatenation of, of of social relations and forces that you know are much more than just uh, the accumulative dynamic behind capitalism. So in that sense, I think you know there's a lot going on that got us where we are. I think you're absolutely right to say that the last 40 years have been particularly disastrous. Um, and I am, I am of two minds as to whether or not, you know, uh, that it's that 40 years that turned the corner for us. Certainly it seems to from an emissions perspective, but there, there are dynamics that are both sort of pan-capitalist across history. And then there are also very particular ones that you ascribe rightly, I think, neoliberal era, um, in, in, particularly in its sort of punitive, vindictive form that it's taken now, a kind of angry uh, expropriation of the rest of the world that, uh, that's combined with a weird victim-like defensiveness on the part of the so-called job creators that I find, uh, you know, particularly ugly, but also uh, very powerful. Right. That's uh, interesting. Yeah. Um, now, as far as the uh, crisis that you are considering, uh, you considered in, in climate leviathan. We're we're undergoing uh, uh, unprecedented and, and and kind of unconsidered, uh, un unthinkable kind of crisis that nobody could have imagined. Um, and and yet here we are today. Um, I'm just wondering whether what you think we can learn from this crisis and how different countries are reacting to it uh, about. Um, the, the kind of scenarios that you were looking at and uh, whether it, it gives you reflects back or gives you any insight into, into, into those different scenarios. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. One that Joel and I have been trying to think about. Both of us are still, you know, trying to figure out what's going on like everyone else, but it's really, I think we're thinking about the, I mean, as I'm, as I mentioned, I think briefly earlier, uh, my, if I, if I had to make a, you know, a call in terms of the trajectories we laid out and how this will will shape them or or in any way bend them. I think, as I said, uh, it will give uh, even more legitimacy to to climate leviathan to the attempt to kind of maintain as close as possible to a normal that that uh, preserves existing hierarchies both within and between nation states um, in a way that manages the problem. Uh, as well as could be hoped, I suppose. But it will guarantee, to the extent that it's possible, which is not very much, uh, a normal, as you mentioned, that that at least right now has a, an extraordinary appeal, and we can see we can see that in the response across the planet. I think I don't think that's necessarily any sign at all that normal was great or that normal worked for everyone. But it is, uh, if normal is a mode. Uh, it's the one through which most people, for good or ill, access the way to get by, and and the, the at least it was pr somewhat predictable, I suppose, for some, and provided uh, something like uh, a stable future with which to you know look at the world around you. Now, of course, it was very it didn't work very well for a lot of people, but I think that you know the the, the desperate cry for a return to normal makes perfect sense. And in some ways, it's kind of a weird hegemony that's working itself out. If you remember, 
you know, people talk about hegemony as being this combination of coercion and consent, whereby people agree to a, an arrangement because both they have to and also because they've consented to. And I think we find ourselves in this really funny moment right now, funny, I shouldn't say, strange moment right now where, you know, the desperate, the desperate hope for a return to normal, um, especially in, you know, the wealthier parts of the world, is it doesn't even really necessarily require consent any longer. It just requires a, a sense that you've resigned yourself to the, to the order. And if one has resigned oneself to the order in a normal, because it seems impossible to change, and now even that has been ripped away, then you can see that the clamor for a, a, a brutally unequal normal makes, you know, makes a lot of sense for a lot of people because it's better than this. Um, I, I, uh, I, I think, as I said, that, that that will really give a lot of legitimacy to, to existing arrangements if uh, we can't you know, destabilize those and use this as an opportunity for presenting something new. Well, that's right. Um, and, and I know you, you, you've spent time thinking about the, the 2008 crisis and, you know, the, the kinds of crises that, that, that are, uh, well, are they endogenous or exogenous, whether they're part of capitalism or whether they're just these kind of things that happen. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and uh, you know, uh, we didn't do very well after the 2008 crisis. Things got worse in many ways. The inequality got worse, and uh, you know, some uh, uh, lipstick on the uh, maybe the regulations for the banks and things like that, but not nothing uh, very substantial. And uh, so it was a crisis. Uh, what, what I guess, as the Chinese say, it's also a word for opportunity. It, it didn't really uh, pan out that way. Do you have thoughts about that, particularly in light of? where we are today and the kinds of things that we need to think about or hope for uh, going forward to try and uh, mobilize the forces for change. Mm -hmm. I I do have some thoughts whether or not they're worth a lot of people's time is a different question, um, only because they're just in formulation, probably like they are for everyone out there. Um, But I would say that... uh, I agree with you entirely. I mean, I I, I don't like the, you know, if we, if we think of, you know, the broad, let's, let's imagine the broad community of people concerned about the fate of the planet and, and the justice of the political economic arrangements by which we live. If you think of that broad community of progressives, for lack of a better term, um, that there was a lot of talk, you know, come about the middle of the, last decade where there was a framing as if the the financial crisis had been a a failure on the part of the left or a failure on the part of progressives to to take the opportunity for you know massive change the end of neoliberalism this kind of thing i i i think that way of framing it is is both wrong and unfortunate um uh you know the, the 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 talk of failure um is both uh uh premature i mean we you know how many political movements in the past have have supposedly failed you might say over and over again only to eventually succeed the failures then seem like building toward the success so certainly the activities that that came about out of the financial crisis i think were all worthwhile and and those will persist i do think too that this crisis in that sense presents an opportunity perhaps for some of the 
the, the possibilities that emerged in 2008, you know, not so much the end of neoliberalism. I'm not naive enough to think that's happening, but, um, but you know, to major challenges to certain institutional frameworks, I think that is totally up for grabs right now. And in fact, you know, we are, I think right now we're at these, a moment of political possibility that could go in a variety of directions, some of them actually terrifying and some of them really exciting in a positive way. And, and I don't think we're yet at a moment where we can know that can, what's going to happen, but we can be sure that there are folks organizing all over the planet in an attempt to try and sway how those reactions go. And, you know, even something as straightforward or not straightforward, that's the wrong term, even something as, as every day as uh, sovereign debt, you know, that is, that relationship is, it is, is it's impossible for me to imagine that relationship emerging from this crisis in, uh, in the same stable form in which it somehow emerged from the financial crisis. I don't know if you saw just yesterday, I believe, or maybe it was Friday, Martin Guzman, the, the new finance minister in Argentina, you know, wrote a, uh, an open letter effectively, basically saying, you know, we've been going on with this charade for 30 years or 40 years that Argentina is going to pay its debts. We can't, we're not, it's impossible. He just basically told the world that. <laughs> this is a brilliant economist too. So we're in a moment when you know substantial institutional links in the chain could break, and uh, and we can help those break uh, in this moment. And that won't be a failure, even if we don't, you know, win the day. It, it, it's interesting you say that, and uh, I, I'm wondering what, what, as you say, it's a moment of flux. Tectonic plates are shifting. It's you can consider scenarios. Um, uh, unfolding, and yet uh, it's a little bit of soothsaying going on, trying to get a sense of how how mm -hmm. it's all going to, you know, pan out. But um, you know, it's 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 a terrible tragedy and crisis. Uh, I was wondering what what silver linings do you see, or what what um, uh, what where do you find optimism? Uh, you know, I mean, many people have said that. One thing that becomes apparent at a time like this that how many of the the kind of norms of the way the the economy operates and the way the society operates are really quite i won't say random but you know they're not built in stone the way they're always presented we can change things quite quickly in fact overnight and <laughs> there's a sense of possibility perhaps associated with that um at the same time you see uh, ideas that have been lurking. Uh, I guess around the universal uh, benefit, uh, universal basic income, which Spain looks like it's taking up at the moment. Um, you mentioned the, the kind of possibility of debt jubilees or, or something like that. Um, uh, I guess this is a new. Uh, uh, I, this idea has been around as a modern monetary theory, or that's been in the air as well um, for a while. Um, different, I guess, uh, people proposing that and so forth. But I'm just wondering, um, what, 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 what do you see there <laughs> in, in the grounds of coffee that, that, that kind of inspire you? <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 like you probably, I'm looking for silver linings all the time. Um, and some days I see them and they're fleeting and some days I see them and they seem more stable. Um, I think that, you know, uh, uh, I think that there, as we as we have both said now, um, the 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 possibilities. Uh, I think they're closing fast. You might say, but the possibilities for 
substantial and radical change are there. Um, I, I think that this uh, crisis in particular has precisely in some ways because of the, the sort of rhythm of them, you know, the, the fact that it's following closely upon the financial crisis uh, has given people an opportunity to kind of rethink some of the stuff that they were panically trying to figure out during the financial crisis. And one of the em emergent properties of that, that conversation, I think, is that is a, a renewed internationalism. Um, and by that, I mean one that doesn't necessarily feed through either existing international institutions, nor even necessarily through uh, interstate conversation. I think that progressives around the world now, if you want to call it that, the, uh, and that, I say progressives precisely because I want to include both people who understand themselves as radical left, but also folks who think of themselves as just like progressive. Uh, but I think those conversations are beginning. People are trying to think about uh, formal slash institutional solutions, but also other kinds of political organizing and movement building solutions that might both prevent something like this from happening again, um, but also put in place uh, coordinating mechanisms across boundaries that have thus far prevented organizational integration um, so that going forward, at least there's a platform for the uh, articulation of a more broad progressive uh, set of ways of thinking and approaching and even perhaps building institutions that help uh, enforce or uh, incentivize uh, uh, different kinds of responses at the, at the national or uh, nation state scale. So I think that is actually already happening and, and that is extremely exciting and has the potential, of course, to, to, to end up being a little bit of a hollow uh, possibility, but I think, I think that's not gonna happen. I, I have a great deal of hope for that. The question is, of course, at what scale and what kind of realms of life it can, it can speak loudly enough to be heard. So I, I, think, that's, I think that's extremely helpful, uh, hopeful, sorry. I also feel like you know, the community response uh, in many places, I don't want to speak for everywhere, of course, because I have no knowledge to, to justify that. But, you know, people have been good to each other in a lot of places. Not, not all the time, of course, and not everywhere and not everybody. But people have been good to each other. And in some ways, you know, it, it, this, the, the whole crisis has played out uh, for lots of folks, I think, as proof that, you know, the economist's model of the self-interested uh, rational actor is kind of not true. People haven't turned on each other. Um, for the most part, and they haven't, uh, they, 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 they have, in many cases, of course, sacrificed themselves uh, and, and their incomes and opportunities uh, in the interests of something you might call the greater good or the collective good. Um, and so they're, they're, I think people have learned that, for one thing, some of the social hierarchies that we live with, like in other words, skilled versus unskilled labor, that's kind of been upturned a great deal of uh, respect, I think, being paid now, rightly so, to so-called unskilled work. Um, and we've learned how, as you mentioned, how arbitrary and idle much of professional work is um, and how unnecessary it is when the world actually, you know, crunches to a halt. So there's mutual aid everywhere. I mean, there's lots of reasons to feel very, very, very hopeful uh, right now, of course, if one looks a little bit beyond the immediate term. And I say this from a Canadian context. Uh, not from an American context in which, of course, 2,000 people and soon to be more are dying a day. So if you spoke to someone who lived in Chicago, they might sound very different. Yes.
Yes. You, you said that you weren't naive enough to think it might be the end of the neoliberal uh, tradition or economy uh, and so forth. And yet we've seen this extraordinary uh, bailout culture, the, the government's coming in to provide money to, you know, all across the economy or, well, maybe not so much, maybe maybe in different places to, uh, concentrated to particular groups and so forth. But the idea, well, in of the free market or whatever was, you know, the, as it was presented has been totally ripped apart, really. I mean, <laughs> it, it, is this um, one of your, your areas of interest? I know is Keynesianism and so forth, which hasn't been uh, uh, really... Uh, I got a lot of respect in, in recent years. Is this... Uh, 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 a beginning, a new beginning. Is there you hope for a more broad-based Keynesianism, or is it a kind of a, a socialising the the losses uh, and, and and you know uh, privatising the profits, which happen and, and and we get the the crisis and then on we go. Right. I think we're, I, mean, I think you're you're absolutely touching on crucial stuff, and and uh, and I think we're yet to know exactly what the answer is. But I I think I think I know for almost for certain what the people in charge are hoping it looks like. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I, I think, you know, it, it, the term doesn't get used very much though. I have seen it circulating a little bit lately. Um, and you know, this idea of a Keynesian neoliberalism. Uh, and I think that's, I think that's if the, if, if we can include that in the range of Keynesianisms, which is much broader than, than you know, just the thought of Keynes, and in fact, if the thought of Keynes were the basis for what we now call Keynesian economics, it would look radically different than what most people think of as Keynesianism. So, insofar as the term has exploded to cover virtually any situation in which the state steps in to provide stimulus or support to a you know teetering part of the economy, if that counts as neo as Keynesianism, then I think we're in a moment of you know Keynesian neoliberalism, and. But I would also say that it, I think we would be wrong to think that neoliberalism was ever other than that. It, you know, I've written about this, but, and I hope I'm not the only one who thinks it's true, but I, you know, I would say that Keynesianism has always been the panic button in the back pocket of neoliberalism since its onset. Um, insofar as, you know, the, 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 the dream of a free market coordinated, uh, integrated economy that makes sense according to sort of general equilibrium models has always been a mythology that the state has had to, you know, reassert or retell over and over again. And the way it does that is partly by stepping in and reminding everyone with this stimulus that this is the way that things should work. The stimulus is meant to put us back on track for this so-called classical economy in Keynes terms. And so, you know, the, the, the stimulus that's coming out right now, certainly more of it's directed at workers, so-called helicopter money and this kind of stuff than ever before. But I would be very reluctant to describe it as anything other than emergency measures to prop up a, a hopeful speedy return to a neoliberal normal. Whether or not that's successful, of course, is a totally different issue. But that's what this is about. This is not about socializing uh, an, sorry, it is about socializing losses, but it is not about socializing or collectivizing the economy in any way. That's not the goal, virtually as I, I understand it, anywhere. Um, this yeah. is really about you know saving the social order uh, to to return some stability to the to the hierarchies. 
but do ideas matter and 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 you know the arguments for for for, for some time now people have been saying well the neoliberal uh you know the arguments don't work anymore and you know we've seen what's happened we've seen this tremendous inequality we've seen all kinds of problems and so forth and 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 you know uh the economics don't even add up um but yeah <laughs> on, on, on it goes um what do you think that we can learn from the period of of i guess what you might call classic keynesianism or or you know uh that period uh after the war which also gave rise to new institutional arrangements which mm-hmm. uh were had a uh, tremendous importance in in i guess the post-war period in europe mm-hmm. absolutely and 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 uh you know, uh, I I have been in the past. Perhaps it's my generation. You know, I'm a I'm a I'm first. I was born just at the end of the baby boomers, and so I guess I don't count as a boomer. But but uh, you know, I'm 51 right now, and so I have grown up, perhaps like you, always a little bit jaded about the nostalgia for the post-war era, the greatest generation, and this kind of stuff that has suffused at least North American. Uh, ways of talking about both history and political economy, um, and so I, I've always been a little bit sensitive about the the, the nostalgia for the for the greatness of of post-war Keynesianism and Ford, Fordism. But you're right. I mean, you know, we have in place uh, institutions that are, whose power, of course, has been drastically reduced over the last forty years, and in some cases entirely erased. But we have in place at least the shell of institutions that are pretty remarkable things. Um, you know, in, in Britain, you have the National Health Service, which was a product of sort of post-war, uh, really active left organizing and, and, and political work. You know, here in Canada, we have universal health care that is, in my opinion, at least extraordinarily functional, given the challenges that it's had to face. Um, and so, you know, we have institutions like this that show that, that, that if that version of political economy is Keynesianism, then Keynesianism has stuff to offer us right now. And I think that, you know, even the, the, the most Marxist of economists, uh, the, the smartest ones, the people like Bill Dunn working in Australia, you know, take Keynes's ideas and Keynesianism very seriously from a, you know, what he would say is a, 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 a you know, a, a fairly uh, substantially Marxist perspective. So that there's not like the, the folks on the far left can't learn from Keynes. But I would say at the same time that we have to be careful to, to, to not attribute to the Keynesian or Fordist post-war, you know, so-called social democratic moment, not to attribute it to it things that it actually only ended up with despite itself, if that makes any sense. You know, the, 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 the labor government after the, first, after the Second World War in Britain was pretty damn radical. And certainly very damn radical by the standards of the 70s and 80s. So if the social democracy that enjoyed, say, a National Health Service after the war takes credit for that National Health Service, well, that's actually retelling history a little bit. Um, that, that in a way that, that, that lets Keynesianism and the Keynesian era off the hook. Yes, I, I, I guess um, also um, the, the the New Deal in America and, and, and institutions, I guess, like the Bretton Woods or the World Bank and things like that as well. And I just wonder um, whether whether you, this is something that you think is important or interesting. I mean, it, I guess in the, you're talking about 
kind of uh, coordinating uh, frameworks, I guess, politically that go beyond the nation state and so forth, uh, what they might look like or what 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 uh, the, the kind of political uh, landscape was that that gave rise to those? I mean, I, I think it was a, uh, I can't remember who, who said this, but that that uh, FDR said after after the the New Deal, he said that uh, effectively he'd saved capitalism. <laughs> so as you say, you know, these, some of these uh, the results um, aren't necessarily uh, from the high-minded. Uh, uh, goals that we might think <laughs> today right no I, I i would agree entirely i think he's right he, in some ways he he might he, he might be right or at least he contributed to saving capitalism though i think it's unclear precisely what would have replaced it at the time i don't think yes 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 no, I, I just uh mindful of the time i, I mean I, I think in this interview i don't know whether it was you or joe who talked about this and and clearly it is uh, a tremendously important and, and often neglected uh, question is this, you know, uh, importance of uh, local action and uh, bridges between different uh, local groups and, uh, and so forth. Uh, and, and, and some, I guess, institutions which, which don't even recognize the state. And I think in, in the interview, there was a quote, and I, I, don't, I don't know either of you said this, but so we don't see a map to this and attempts to map it have been a total and complete failure. I was just talking about the, the, these uh, local uh, initiatives or, or uh, yeah, I was wondering, can you maybe talk with that, about that a little bit as well? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I think partly, or maybe even largely what we're, what we Joel or I were pointing to when we said that was was uh, a reference again to the stuff I spoke about earlier the sort of failure of existing institutional responses um to that and and attempts to uh I'm not sure if I would revise that but attempts to to map in some ways a local response or at least a, a non-state uh response that 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 works at a scale that makes sense for the problem and the people involved. Um, if there have been attempts to map that beyond very specific local case studies, uh, which wouldn't really be a map, of course, uh, I'm unaware of them. I, I, if that's what we're talking about, then I would take back the idea that it's been a total or complete failure because I don't think it's really been done yet. So, so, and, and I'm not, I would be reluctant even to advocate it necessarily, a map for local responses. I think precisely the, the, the need for democratic local responses is, arises because uh, so many of the maps that we've handed out from on high have, have failed. Yes, I think that's a tremendously important uh, idea and um, neglected, it, it does seem. But um, I, I think the kind of solidarity we're seeing in the, and, and the communities working together, or communities working during this crisis, um, maybe can be some kind of beacon. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I guess that's also a, a question is, you know, with the Occupy movement as well, in, you know, in... in it's another whole area for a whole other discussion, I guess, uh, Joel. Uh, um, uh, but what, what, what's next? Sorry, Jeff. What's next for you? Oh, well, I, you know, I, when all of this kind of hit the ground, I was uh, in, in the early stages of, a, of work looking at climate economics, trying to think about, you know, the limits that the current ways of thinking about the climate change 
uh, from an economic policy perspective, we're constraining our capacity to respond. Thinking a lot about, you know, the 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 limits of the, the so-called social cost of carbon res- uh, approach. Thinking a lot about the way we construct the discount rate and anticipating certain kinds of continuities that seem to me absurd, as in you know two percent growth over the next hundred years, which is sort of standard thinking in a lot of those models. Um, uh, so I was working on that and and uh, that really got thrown sideways mostly because I just got really distracted um, by everything that was going on. I think in my conversations with my friends, I'm certainly not the only one who, who, whose, whose work lost track, you know, lost its tracks uh, during the time. But next for me, I think is, is, is going to be uh, to return to that because as I mentioned at the opening of our conversation, I'm, really worried about the the progress that may be lost on the climate front and uh and i i think too that that the kinds of economic thinking that dominate in uh, that have dominated uh both before the financial crisis and then amazingly after the financial crisis are are uh you know ripe for the to be toppled right now but also uh very likely to to sort of take center stage again and so I think on the climate front, it's worth my while thinking about that. Yes, I think it's vitally important that the climate discussions, climate thinking, climate activism continues, although, as you say, it's difficult times and people have a lot on their, their mind and, uh, and governments saying uh, China's already removing lots of its environmental restrictions and so forth. And uh, America, on the other hand, uh, is using an opportunity to, to get rid of lots of uh, uh, environmental uh, laws as well. But um, really vitally important work, and I wish you the very best of success with that, Jeff. And thank you so much for sharing your ideas and your work with us today. Oh, thanks. For, well, thank, thank you very much for having me. It's been really, uh, it's been really great to talk to you. And uh, you've certainly provoked me to think about a lot of things that I, I need to you know, keep thinking harder about. <laughs> thanks, Jeff. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.